to start this series, I want you to imagine something. And for some of you, imagining this is going to be very difficult. For others of you, this will be very easy. But I want you to imagine what your life would be like if you had absolute and perfect confidence and trust that there really was one true God and that he was a personal God who knows you by name and he's the God who is with you every second of the day. Imagine if you had that kind of faith. Uh, imagine when things got really bad financially with your marriage, with your health, at work, with your parents. You had unwavering faith that God was with you and he would see you through it. Imagine when you were faced with a temptation and you're just not sure how in the world you were going to say no. That, that, that you were confident that God would give you the strength to overcome. Imagine when you were faced with a huge decision that you didn't know what to do with. That you, you trusted that God would reveal the right path to you. Imagine when things got worse and worse and worse. You had unshakable faith that God had a plan and a will for your life. I mean, imagine that. Imagine no fear, no anxiety, no disbelief. Imagine having absolute confidence that God was with you, that God was working, that God was there, no matter what you faced. I mean, you already know, everything in your life would be so different. And chances are we've all heard stories or have known people like this before. People who have appears to what appears to what be unshakable faith. That no matter what happens to them, no matter what comes along, they have unwavering confidence that God is in control. R regardless of what life throws at them, they just seem to trust that God is with them. When they experience the death of a loved one, job loss, infertility, suffering, pain, disappointment, they seem to have this extraordinary, big, out-of-the-box, mind-boggling, unshakable faith in God. And, and when we meet someone like that, on the one hand, we just want to like... Shake them back into the re in reality. But on the other hand, there's just something about them that is, we're so attracted to and so amazed by. And we're not amazed by their amazing beliefs. You may not even believe the same thing that they believe. We're amazed by their amazing faith. Imagine if you could have amazing faith like that. Imagine if that could be your experience. Well, what I believe to be with 100% certainty is that there, this is where God wants to take you. It's where he wants to take me. It's where he wants to take us, regardless of where we're currently at on our faith journey. The question is, how do we get it? And that's what we're talking about in this series. One glaring thing that sticks out all throughout the pages of Scripture is that God is trying to build into people an extraordinary, big, out-of-the-box, mind-blowing, are-you-kidding-me kind of faith, trust, confidence, I'm using all those words interchangeably, faith in Him. That's the story of the Old Testament, the books written before Jesus. That's the story of the New Testament, the books written after Jesus. That's the story of your and my life. And the reason that's the story, because in the beginning, the break in relationship between God and humanity happened around the issue of trust. God created humanity for, and this is a key word, relationship with him. In the beginning, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the thing that broke the relationship between God and humanity wasn't, a, wasn't simply a matter of disobedience. But it was a refusal to trust God. Adam and Eve decided, God, you're withholding something good for me. God, I don't think you know what's best for me. God, I think you have an, an, another agenda other than what you told me about. So therefore, God, you can't be trusted. And at that moment, Adam and Eve chose to sin. 
And this is so important. Sin was introduced to the world through Adam and Eve's choice not to trust God. And the moment the trust was broken, the relationship was broken. And since that moment, God has been working to draw people back into the relationship with him that he created us for. In the Old Testament, as part of God's redemptive plan, God promised the Hebrew people who became known as the Israelites, who eventually became known as the Jews, that they would be his people and, they would be, and that he would, he would be their God and they would be his people. His entire point in doing so was to show the rest of the world what it, what it was like to have a relationship with the one true living God. When God launched Israel as a nation in Egypt, Egypt, the first thing he said to them was not obey me and then give them the Ten Commandments. A long time before he ever said that to them, the very first thing he said to them was, I want you to trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And after 400 years of slavery, the Israelites came out of Egypt saying, God, you are the one true living God, and we trust you alone as our God. Listen, this is so vitally important. As you read through the Old Testament, this is so vitally important. It wasn't until after their relationship with him was established that God gave the, God gave the nation of Israel the laws and commands to live by as his people. You guys, this is so important. The relationship preceded obedience. It wasn't until after the relationship with him was already established that he said, now, be obedient. Because God's ultimate desire was and is a relationship of trust with humanity. It's what he created us for. Throughout the Old Testament, God was trying to build into his people extraordinary, huge, big, out-of-the-box faith and trust and confidence in him. So when we get to the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised by the epicenter of Je that the epicenter of Jesus' message was, believe in me. The, the message of Jesus was not, here's some more commandments. It was not, be really good and then maybe you can go to heaven. It was not, here's a religious to-do list and if you do all of them, then God will love you. The driving message of the New Testament is God saying through Jesus, trust me. Trust me. The entire reason God sent me was to redeem and reconcile and restore your broken relationship with him. And just as a lack of trust in the, uh, broke it in the garden, a realignment of trust with me will reestablish it. So trust me. Trust in me. Man, the thing I want and the thing I care about most is your pastor. The thing I want more than anything is for every single person, and you, if you haven't, to put your faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. Because a saving relationship with God is initiated through an act of trust just like the break in relationship with him happened through a lack of trust. A saving relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus. It doesn't come through obedience to a list of religious do's and don'ts. When Jesus died on the cross in our place for the sin that we deserved, we were freely offered forgiveness. We were freely offered salvation. And we were invited back into a relationship with God. The relationship that he created us for. A relationship defined by, I trust you. 
So listen, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and something stirs in you during this time together to do so today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that before we walk out of here today. At Relevant, we want to help every single person put their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and lead their life. And then we want to help every single person grow in their relationship with Jesus. And when we talk about growing in a relationship with Jesus, what's actually growing is our trust and our faith in him. Our faith in God growing is so important because you already know this. As trust goes, so goes the relationship. Trust is at the center of every healthy relationship. That's true between husband and wife. It's true between father and son. It's true between friends, between colleagues. And it's especially true between you and God. If you were to ask me, Ronnie, what is God, or what is Jesus, what is, what is, what is this God trying to do in my life? I would say he's trying to teach you to trust him. What God is trying to do in every situation and in every circumstance is, grow our, is, to, is to grow your faith in him. Because as trust goes, so goes the relationship with him that he created us for. Trust is the currency of relationship. The more we trust God, the better the relationship with him will be. And the better our relationship with him is, the more we experience with his presence, the more he transforms us into everything he's created us to be, the more then our faith in him grows. Listen, I don't know everything going on in your life, but I do know God is working relentlessly to establish a growing relationship with you characterized by God. I trust you. God, I trust you. I don't always understand what's going on. God, I don't understand what, uh, always understand why my prayers go unanswered. God, I don't know why life doesn't seem to be going my way, but God, I trust you. If you're someone who once upon a time used to have faith, but you lost it, or you're someone who's beginning to lose your faith because you've just seen or heard or experienced too much, this series may help explain what happened to you or what's happening to you. This series is for those of you who are looking for faith. This series is for those of you who are looking to rediscover or reclaim your faith. This series is for those of you who are looking to strengthen or to grow in your faith. So, here we go. When we follow Jesus through the Gospels, which are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we discover there were only two times that Jesus was amazed by someone. Wouldn't that be fun to be one of those people that, like, Jesus was amazed by, like you did something, and then Jesus like stopped and was like, whoa, did you see that? Like how fun would that be to amaze Jesus? I mean, a lot of people were amazed by what Jesus did, but there are only two times that Jesus was amazed by someone else. And both of those times had to do with people's faith. And I want to spend a few minutes looking at one of those times. And this story is found in Matthew 8, and here's how the story goes. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, because by this time Jesus was gaining popularity and notoriety because of his miraculous works. A man with leprosy, and leprosy was like this horrendous skin disease that was uncurable. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Saying, Jesus, because of the miracles I've seen you perform and I've heard about you performing, I believe you can heal me. So, Jesus, will you? I mean, this man had faith that Jesus could heal him because of what he had heard and seen Jesus do before. 
And here's how Jesus responded. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He said, I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. I mean, in an instant, Jesus miraculously healed this man. And as amazing as that was, interestingly enough, no one seemed too impressed by it. Because by this time, they're kind of getting used to seeing Jesus do this stuff, which just seems crazy to me. So they're on the side, they're just golf clapping. Well, after Jesus healed this man, Jesus and his his disciples went to the nearby town of Capernaum, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, and a centurion is an officer in the Roman military who had authority over a hundred Roman soldiers. So a centurion came to him, and what he did when he approached Jesus was absolutely shocking. He came to him asking for help. So Jesus and the disciples, they got to Capernaum, and immediately they're noticed. And a crowd starts to gather around Jesus. And then a Roman centurion, probably who was flanked by his hundred Roman soldiers under his authority, approached the crowd and approached Jesus. It's created a ton of tension. To understand the tension that everyone was feeling in that moment, you need to know that the Roman government and the Roman military were viewed as the bad guys in first century Judea. As the dominating world power at that time, they oppressed, they forcefully taxed, and they controlled the lives of first century Jews. Roman soldiers, they were feared. And they were despised by Jews because they, the, the Jews viewed them as unclean pagans who were completely unacceptable to their God. Well, in view of that cultural tension, this Roman centurion with his hundred soldiers walks through the crowd straight up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I need you to do me a favor. I need your help. And in that moment, the crowd, the disciples, the Roman soldiers... They're in shock that this Roman centurion asked Jesus for help. Because in their eyes, he's the one, as the Roman centurion, who had all the power. And who had all the authority. And here's what he asked for. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus, I I heard just that you healed the leper right outside the city just earlier today. And I've also heard about others that you have healed. Uh, One of my servants, Jesus, is paralyzed and is laying in my home. And I imagine the disciples, Jesus' disciples of that moment going, good, good. We hope he dies. And that whatever paralyzed him is contagious. And we hope that you get it, your hundred men get it, your families get it, the emperor gets it. Jesus, let's go help some God-fearing Jewish people, not this pagan Roman. But Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Jesus responded by asking the Roman centurion a logical question like, well, do you want me like to follow you to your house and heal your servant? And you'd expect the Roman centurion to go, uh, yeah, Captain Obvious. Like, that's what I just asked for. But instead, he said something that no one was expecting, even Jesus. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And the 12 disciples are thinking, well, that's true. We don't really want to go into your pagan home anyway. And then listen to this. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. In other words, Jesus, I don't think you need to come all the way to my home. I think if you just say the word from eight blocks away, you can heal my servant wirelessly, long distance. 
Then he explained why he believed that. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He goes, Jesus, I I know how this authority thing works. I have a hundred soldiers under my authority. They obey me, not because I'm faster, not because I'm stronger, not because I'm tougher, but because who I represent. I represent the Roman Empire. And Jesus, I've been watching you. And I see there's more to you than people think. And I think, Jesus, that you and me, we have something in common. We both represent an authority bigger than ourselves. And Jesus, I don't know who you represent or whose authority you're under, but clearly it's something or someone bigger because sickness and disease and death, well, they do what you say. So if you're willing to heal my servant, then I don't think you need to come all the way to my house to do it. I think you can, it, it, you can just do what I do and issue the command from here. And I believe if you do, then it will be done. And then check this out. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Jesus was astonished. He was impressed. He was astounded. But amazed by what? I mean, people ask Jesus to heal them all the time. A leper just asked him to heal him. He just healed him. But Jesus wasn't amazed by that leper when he asked him to heal him. Why was Jesus amazed by this Roman centurion? And unfortunately, excuse me, fortunately, Jesus told us why. And what he said was kind of a dig at many of his followers and a slap in the face to most first century Jews. Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The thing that amazed Jesus most was big, bold, active faith. You've heard of amazing grace. This Roman centurion had amazing faith. And what made it so amazing was that he somehow recognized who Jesus represented, who Jesus represented, and it caused him to believe in what Jesus alone could do. And his faith caused him to go all in. And it's so ironic. It's so ironic that the people who claimed to know God didn't have this kind of faith. So imagine Jesus going, hey, can I get everyone's attention? All you God-fearing Jews, can I get your attention? Matthew, Peter, John, you need to make sure you listen. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, the Roman centurion. I'm amazed because he has more faith than anyone I have met, than all the people who, have, who claim to have faith in God. He has the type of extraordinary faith that I desire for all of you to have. Now, as I said before, there were only two times Jesus was amazed by someone, and both times had to do with faith. As we just saw, the first time Jesus was amazed was because of this Roman centurion's faith. The other time Jesus was amazed was because of a group of people's lack of faith. And I'm not going to read that story, but if you want to read it this week, you can go to Mark chapter 6, and you can read it yourself. Here's what you need to know. Jesus was never amazed by someone's knowledge or obedience. Let me say that again. Jesus was never amazed by someone's knowledge 
or obedience. Now, for some of you, this may be in contrast to what you have heard or what you have been taught. Jesus never marveled at how much people knew about God, and he never marveled at anyone's obedience to God. Jesus was most amazed by extraordinary faith in God. Faith that wasn't simply in their heads, but that was lived out in the reality of life. So there it is. The two things that amazed Jesus most were great faith and a lack of faith. What we learn when we follow Jesus through the Gospels is that his agenda for his first century followers and for his 21st century's followers is that they and that we would become people characterized by extraordinary, huge, big, out-of-the-box, I-can't-believe-it, wow-did-you-see-that, unshakable, unwavable, go-the-distance faith in God. But this is where people get confused And this is where many people confuse the message of Jesus. Even those of us who grew up in church and say that we're followers of Christ, but especially those who are skeptical of all this. you got to know this. Faith always has an object. Faith always has an object. And because of the way that we often talk about faith, people confuse faith with optimism. People confuse faith with hope. The object of hope is a particular outcome. The object of hope is a particular outcome. But the object of faith isn't a particular outcome. In other words, the kind of faith that we see Jesus talking about in the New Testament isn't isn't about trying to believe everything is going to be fine and everything is going to work out. And like if I just have faith, everything's going to work out for me. That's hope. That's optimism. Jesus wasn't amazed at the Roman centurion's hope. He was amazed at the Roman centurion's faith in him. This is so important. Jesus established himself as the object of our faith, not some outcome. It's why when we read the Gospels, you see Jesus inviting people to put their faith and their trust in him. On the night Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified on the cross in our place the next days, the next day, his disciples, they're upset. They're afraid. They're confused. In the middle of a long conversation with them, Jesus said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's saying, I don't want you to be worried about all this. You believe in God, and he didn't mean you believe God exists. That's totally different. He's saying, you trust in God, don't you? And they're like, yes. Then Jesus said something that was so blasphemous you believe in God believe also in me saying just as you trust just as you have confidence just as you have faith in holy creator God I want you to trust and have faith and believe in me By saying this, Jesus was establishing himself as the object of their faith and the object of our faith. And the reason Jesus positioned him as the object of our faith is because Jesus came to show us what God is like. Jesus came to reveal the true nature of our heavenly father, of holy creator God. And one of the reasons some of you have lost faith in God is because of your assumptions about God and and your assumptions about what God is like. 
First century Jews had many assumptions about what God was like. And most of them were absolutely wrong. And one of the reasons Jesus came was to reveal and explain and show what God was really like and to correct some of those incorrect assumptions. And in doing so, Jesus greatly offended the people who thought they knew for certain what God was like. And that's one of the big reasons that the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get rid of him. Jesus was clear. If you want to know what God is like, watch me. Listen to me. Follow me. Just as you trust and believe in Holy Creator God, I want you to trust and to believe in me. Jesus came so that we would know what our heavenly Father is like. And to lead us to trust in him as, as the object of our faith. Because to trust in Jesus is how we have faith. And who God actually is. Listen, if you've lost faith in God, I would encourage you to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with this question in mind. What do I learn about God from Jesus? What do I learn about God from Jesus? If you really want to know God, if you really want to know what God desires... If you really want to know what God is trying to do, trying to, if you really want to grow and strengthen and rediscover your faith, don't begin in the book of Genesis. Begin with Jesus. Because Jesus simply isn't simply a chapter in the story. Jesus is the entire freaking story. Jesus was the perfect representation of the one true God. And he proved that through his sacrificial death and miraculous resurrection. It was as if Jesus had said, listen, if you really want to know God, if you really want to know what God is like, don't look past me. Don't stop short of me. Instead, I want you to place your trust in me. The reason we shouldn't be surprised by Jesus constantly talking about belief and trust in him is because <laughs> as trust goes... So goes the relationship. And for God so loved the world. For God so loved you. God so desired a relationship with the world, with you, that he revealed himself through Jesus. And since faith and trust is the currency of every relationship, Jesus said, trust me. Trust in me. Trust in me. In doing so, you're trusting in and you're growing your relationship with the one who sent me. What we discover in the Gospels what we discover when we listen to stories of people with unshakable faith in God. What we discover by talking to people who are actually growing in a relationship with Jesus and thus being more transformed into everything God's created them to be is that God is most honored by our living, active, in spite of, out of the box faith in Jesus. What God desires is us having an extraordinary faith in Jesus. Faith that doesn't try to get something from or assume, or assume something on Jesus. Faith that actively proclaims, Jesus, I trust in you. I trust in you. The thing that amazes Jesus more than, more than anything is expressing our trust in him. Because as trust goes, so goes the relationship. And a relationship, well, that's what God created you for. That's what God sent Jesus to restore. That's what God desires to have with you, and it's what he desires for 
you. The question is, how do we get and develop and grow and enduring, go the, go the distance, unshakable faith in Jesus? An extraordinary faith that informs our responses and our decisions and our actions and our worldview. And here's the reality. Being faithful doesn't happen by accident. God wants to grow your faith in him. But being full of the faith that God desires, and let's be honest, that you desire, it doesn't happen by chance. And it doesn't happen by accident. So what fuels the development of extraordinary faith? Where does that come from? What are the essential ingredients that when stirred together result in enduring trust in God? Well, I'm convinced there are at least five things. After being in ministry for 25 years or so, I've had the opportunity to hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people's faith journey stories. And as they tell their stories, I, and I hear all the highs and lows of their stories, I end up asking them two questions. Hey, why did you end up putting your faith in Jesus? And the second thing I ask them is, what has caused your faith in Jesus to grow since putting your faith in him? Interestingly enough, through these hundreds of stories of how people's faith in God grew, five common denominators always surface. Always. Over and over and over when people say, here's the thing that God used to grow and transform my faith, they always seem to fall into one of five categories. And from this, we've concluded that, that there are five faith catalysts that God uses to fuel our faith in him. And over the next five weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into each one of these. But we, before we do, I want to say a few things. These five faith catalysts, they're not a checklist. They aren't five things you can put on a board and check off every single day. The second thing is, this is not a list you can find anywhere in the Bible, but they come straight from the life and the teaching of Jesus. The third thing is, there may be more. There may be seven there may be 10, there may be 12. For some of you who are Bible scholars, you may go, there's, there's you know, 17, because that's a really good number. There could be. I have no idea. But I'm convinced that there are at least five. I believe these five faith catalysts are so important. They're so important regardless of your age and regardless of the season of life you find yourself in. Because an active, growing, enduring faith, it looks different in every single season of life. Teenagers have unique challenges to their faith. University students have different challenges to their faith. For those of us who are married, the challenges of marriage affect our faith. What about faith while you're having kids or raising kids or dealing with a rebellious kid? What about the struggle to have a child faith or losing a child faith or walking through a divorce faith? Or losing a job, faith. Or losing a loved one, faith. What if you're experiencing financial ruin? Or you're navigating stage five cancer? These five faith catalysts are important in every season because an active, growing, enduring faith looks different in every season of life. Listen, as you move into the future, as you navigate through the seasons of life, as you experience 
pain and hardship. I believe, that, I, I believe these are the five catalysts that God can and wants to use to fuel and to grow and to build an enduring and extraordinary and go the distance and unshakable faith in Jesus. Listen, that's why at Relevant, we've decided everything we do should help leverage these five faith catalysts. These five are one of the reasons why we do what we do as a church and why we don't do what we don't do as a church. So, if you're someone who wants to grow and strengthen your faith, someone who wants to start or maybe restart your faith, someone who maybe wants to rediscover faith, I want to invite you to fully engage over the next five weeks. If you do, I believe your faith will grow. And as trust goes, so goes the relationship. The, the, the stronger our relationship with Jesus is, the more God is glorified, the more we experience his presence, and the more we're transformed into everything he's created us to be. And that's what God desires. So next week, we're going to look at the first faith catalyst. But before we get to that, I want to give you a question to ponder on this week individually and or with your T-Life groups. And here's the question. What would you do if you were confident that God was with you? What would you do if you were 100% confident that God was with you. What would you do in your marriage? What would you do at work? What would you do with your cancer diagnosis? What would you do when you're feeling alone? What would you do as you struggle with that temptation? What would you do in that relationship? What would you do as you navigate this season of life? What would you do when things seem to be falling apart? What would you do when that person hurts you again? What would you do at school? What would you do in the midst of trying to make that hard decision? What would you do as you're dealing with your worry and your anxiety if you fully trusted that God was with you? You've probably met people like this before. People who seem to have hope and peace and joy, even when their lives seem to be falling apart. People who forgive, who love, who show up, who step up when they have every reason not to. People whose faith just isn't in their heads or expressed on Sunday mornings, but is active and is sincere and is enduring. There's something about them you don't understand, but you're drawn to and inspired by. Well, this is where God wants to take your faith. But being faithful doesn't happen by accident. So I want to invite you to fully engage in this series and take the next steps that I challenge you to take over the next few weeks. And who knows, maybe you'll develop the type of faith that Jesus is amazed by. Before I close, I want to say one final thing to those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus. As I said throughout this entire sermon, this is all about a relationship. My, your violation of sin against Holy Creator God broke the relationship with him that he created us for. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came to restore, to redeem, and to reconcile our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father in this life and then the next. It's why Jesus died on the cross it's why Jesus rose from the grave. 
And when Jesus rose from the grave, he proved that he was the Savior who could restore that broken relationship. As I said before, a saving relationship with God is initiated through an act of trust, just like the breaking relationship with him was, happened through a lack of trust. Jesus is inviting you to put your faith in him by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. It's only after we've entered into that relationship with him that our faith and our trust in him can actually grow. I believe there's no better time to do that than the present. And if you've never done that and you feel a stirring to do that today, as I pray, I want to give you the opportunity to pray with me. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for sending your son for us to reestablish our broken relationship with you. And we've made faith about so many things it shouldn't be except about that relationship, which I believe is one of the reasons why our faith sometimes is just stalled out and dies. So, Lord, as we look at these five faith catalysts, I pray that our hearts are open. I pray we take the next steps you're inviting us to take, and I pray our faith is transformed. And, Jesus, for every person that's never put their faith in you, but right now feels a stirring to do that, I pray that right now, wherever they're at, at home, in this room, that they choose quietly to pray to put their faith in you right now. That right now, Jesus, they confess their need for a Savior because their violation of sin broke their relationship with their Heavenly Father. And Jesus, right now I pray that they declare you are that Savior. And you prove that you are through your death and resurrection. And your death was sufficient for their forgiveness and your resurrection for their eternal life. Right now, Jesus, I pray that they ask you to be their Savior. That right now where they're at, they ask you, they put their faith in you by asking you to be the forgiver of their sins. And the leader of their life, their Lord, their God. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.